0: Hello and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. It's wonderful to have you here. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. This next episode is one where you might want to press pause, grab yourself a cup of tea and your favorite comfy outfit or even your pajamas, curl up on the couch and just really take a listen. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Lily Grau, who is not only a licensed doctor, but she's also a marriage Family therapist based in Mexico City. So I've known Lily for a number of years now, and she's just one of those extra special, unique spectacular human beings who you just really want to be your friend and luckily for me she she is my friend and she was generous enough to come on this podcast to tell us a little bit about her experiences around uh, her work her upbringing uh, her insights into the human experience and much much more so a little bit about Lily so she is an eating disorder specialist and clinical supervisor she specializes in mindfulness compassion and mindful eating, and she's also a yoga teacher, a doula, and a bereavement counsellor. Over the last couple of years, she's worked with the Be Nourished crew, as we call them, Hillary and Dana, as a certified body trust provider, and she's also a healthy boundaries for kind people, certified coach, and facilitator. Lily really practices at the intersection of different healing modalities, and she always centers the lived experience of the person in front of her. And what you'll be hearing us really talk about is ways in which she brings her authentic self into her practice. So through her journey in medical school, obviously, you know, in the traditional paradigm, we all learn different ways of being with people and also with ourselves. And I'm sure we would all recognize that there are some significant limitations to our training and and how we're taught to kind of be with the experiences of others and ourselves as well. So what you'll be really hearing Lily and I talk about is the process of cultivating attunement uh, with our own experience and what that brings in terms of of mindful presence to being with our clients and uh, what we might call, quote-unquote, unlearning, which is really quite a process. It's about understanding how our past experiences come to influence the way we believe and the way we are with ourselves and others and then, I guess, you know, really just shifting our um, shifting in the way that we understand that experience to become more present and become more authentic with ourselves and others. I love the part of this conversation where Lily talks about radical, what the word radical means and what it means in terms of what she brings into her practice and to her life as well. Uh, the other thing you'll hear Lily talking about here, which is really unique um, and really is is rising up in our conversations, but it's the first time you will have heard it on this podcast. And this is what's called perf- performative health. And what you'll hear us really discussing is the ways in which we are all encouraged to quote unquote perform not only as health professionals but also as humans so i certainly learned a lot in this conversation and uh, you'll hear some some excellent quotes here from lily she as i said is a spectacular person she is one of my favorite human beings and i just really hope that you really love this episode as much as i do i think i've listened to it now maybe 3 or 4 times and uh, it's really amazing. So grab that cup of tea, put on your favorite pair of jammies, curl up, and I hope you enjoy this episode with myself and Dr. Lily Grau. Hey, Lily, it's so wonderful to speak with you today. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Fee. Oh, it's, um, I've been looking forward to this chat for quite a while. You and I have uh, crossed paths through the Centre for Mindful Eating for quite a number of years now, and we've had the great pleasure of meeting a couple of times, once on retreat with the, with the Be Nourished crew and then last year at the Binge Eating Disorder Association conference. So you and I have quite a bit in common
1: Yes, and actually, I might not have told you this before, but no, I think I did. The reason I was at the retreat at, with the Be Nourished crew was you, actually.
0: What? No, you've yeah. never told me this.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I promise I'm not a stalker. I, just, <laughs> I trust <you. laughs> I just, I was so, so, so wanting to meet you in person because I really felt this connection with you online. And I had also really wanted to do something with Hillary and Dana.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I had a ticket to New York that I hadn't used. And you wrote something on Facebook about after Bida, I'm headed to New York and then to Palu to do a retreat with Hillary and Dana. And I was like, what? <laughs> Hillary and Dana, see, together? <laughs> I cannot possibly miss that. And I already have a ticket. And so... I went so that's how I met you in person
0: yeah and what a blast we had with them you know um, exploring and um, really challenging ourselves and each other around goodness body relationships and it was kind of a, a, a deep dive really wasn't it into um it was like hey I'm Lily I'm Fee hello tell me about your body story <laughs>
1: Yes, it was an incredibly deep dive. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there were such amazing women at the retreat. Right. And Hillary and Dana are just incredible. And I think that, that the, the space they create makes it so easy to really take that deep dive. It does. With humor and with vulnerability. And I still remember the shit shark we yeah, all The shit shark.
0: <laughs> representing the diet industry for those listening. The shit shark, it'll bite you and then shit all over you pretty much. Yep. <laughs> yes, lots of memorable moments there. So, I'm curious to um hear a little bit about how you first came to mindful eating and your mindfulness practice and and where that's led you to today.
1: Absolutely. So it's kind of a a long roundabout story. So when I was a teenager, my mother was a yoga practitioner. And she basically dragged me to my first yoga classes. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. then even though I didn't end up practicing the type of yoga she does, I really fell in love with the practice of yoga. And then I had a teacher in high school who recommended that I try out meditation it was transcendental meditation that I was first introduced to and then when I started medical school I had a sort of vocational crisis after my yeah during my second year I had wanted to become a mathematician oh wow yeah before going into med school and I was still torn I was like uh-huh is this really the right place for me isn't it? And so in second year, I wasn't seeing patients yet. And so we were there learning tons of stuff. And a lot of it, to be honest, didn't make sense in that it was a very mechanistic view of things. Mm. And so I was really wondering if this was the right place for me, should I stay? And so I was looking for comforting things in this little box that I keep of mementos. And I found this postcard that my high school English lit teacher had given me as a gift. And it was a postcard of the Buddha of Compassion. And I thought, hmm, this feels like something I really need to look into. And so I did. And I started practicing Vipassana meditation mm-hmm. in the Theravada tradition. And that's the reason I chose to stay in med school, actually, because, as you know, the the principles of the of the practice of mindfulness and compassion are doing good and to have a meaningful life in terms of service and I thought there wasn 't any place that was as privileged as medicine to do that mm-hmm. and so I stayed in med school thanks to that, and I kept my my own personal meditation and yoga practice going. Which of course made me the weirdo in med
0: school. <laughs> not these days, Lily, I'd say. I think it's really pretty, pretty much mainstream. Uh, not in Mexico yet, okay.
1: although it is definitely starting to become more. But back then, yeah, it, I was really, a friend of mine would say the green dog. Okay. And so I kept my own personal you know, my meditation practice and my yoga practice and I, it was really life changing for me. I I would even go as far as to say it was life saving for me. And then when I ended med school, I trained in eating disorders and I did my master's in marriage and family therapy. And all throughout this, my meditation practice and my yoga practice informed the way I was present with people. And I actually shared some of the practices, but without naming them, so to speak, because I was hesitant to introduce something that could be construed as a religion or as a faith that was different from the predominant faith in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And so for a long time, it was just part of the way I showed up for my clinical practice. And some patients were curious about a couple of the things that I would say or do, and they would ask me, and then I would share with them, and quite a few, actually, I I taught how to meditate, and I recommended that they go to yoga and establish their own yoga practice, and I, as I went to work in the field of eating disorders, I, of course, had dieted many years, too, as I think, unfortunately, of the women I know have.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And I always say that two things healed my relationship with food. One was my mindfulness and compassion practice. And the other one was my patience. I learned so much with them. And, And then I found myself teaching them to eat intuitively and to practice mindful eating. Although for me, it wasn't yet called mindful eating. It was just a way of relating to food that had to do with my meditation practice and my yoga practice. It was just bringing my practice from the mat to life. And, and then at some point throughout the work that I was doing in the field of eating disorders, I came across the book of intuitive eating. And it was like, yes, of course. And then somehow I found the Health at Every Size book and it was like, oh, wow, like this completes it. And then I was still working in a clinic in which I couldn't openly say what I was doing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It was very much the, the normative, weight-biased work that a lot of people are still doing in the field of eating disorders, unfortunately. Yes. And then, so fast forward to two thousand. 11, I injured my back, and in the process of finding ways to heal, a friend of mine invited me to this workshop about an approach to health that I really don't like, but it's because I think it's based on pseudoscience. But the the interesting thing for me, it was a workshop that was packed full of people. Mm-hmm. And the one element that was different from mainstream approach to health was the inclusion of spirituality. And I thought, huh, okay, so people are ready and actually really needing and craving the inclusion of a spiritual dimension to health that mainstream medicine is not providing. Mm-hmm. And I'm already familiar with an amazing practice, which is my mindfulness meditation and For me, it was a Vipassana meditation back then. I wasn't calling it mindfulness. I was calling it Vipassana and yoga. And so I want to find something. And I'm sure somebody has already found a way to insert this into the health system. And so I went online and I found the mindfulness-based stress reduction program. And I was like, yes, I need to study this. And so I went and trained in MBSR. And then I thought, okay, yeah, this is fantastic, but now I need it for food. And I went online and found the Center for Mindful Eating. Mm -hmm. And so I started training formally in 2012 to become a teacher of mindful eating. And started openly saying that what I did in my practice to help people heal their relationship with food and body was mindful eating. I started calling it that openly. And so that's the way, yeah, that's the way I found the center of mindful eating. And that's the way I have come to practice and teach mindful eating formally.
0: Yeah. What an amazing path it's, you know, it, Coming coming from your own personal practice, and it, it sounds as if you spent quite a long time, time in observation and um, observing your own experiences when you were with others, and particularly maybe when you were with others who were struggling or who were in distress. And it sounds as if you were really looking for a way to be able to bring that into your own practice to then assist and support the healing of others, which is, it's just such a gift.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I honestly don't think that we can teach this without practicing it ourselves mm-hmm. and that becoming familiar with the way our mind works and becoming familiar with our own emotions and our own bodies allow us to be present in that way for others too.
0: Yes yes it's it's like the difference between presence and attunement you know yes. being able to be present with our own experiences allows us to be free to uh, notice observe, and be with the flow of energy between people um, and when we are observant and receptive to our own experience then where we are so much more available to, to other people in a very authentic way. And that what I notice is it allows people, it opens that door for other people to become more receptive to their own experiences too, from that place of curiosity, rather than, you know, um shutting down and becoming judgmental, which is the human condition and something that a, a lot of people really, really battle with.
1: Yes. And This curiosity, I find, doesn't come up if we are still really stuck in this very judgmental dialogue with ourselves. Mm -hmm. Not that we don't have it. I still have it, very much so. But I have a different way of relating to it. And because of that, I'm able to show up for other people in that way as well. And the other thing that I've found is that cultivating this presence and this attunement allows us to really connect with the people we're working with, the people who consult us, from a place of genuine love. Yeah. And this is something that is very much, I think, still taboo in many health professions, at least in the way they are taught traditionally. We are taught to have this detachment and this distance because we're meant to be, quote-unquote, objective. hmm But I think the true healing happens when there's a loving connection to facilitate it. Yeah. So I genuinely love the people I work with.
0: Well, I think that also creates or cultivates an environment where people feel universally and unequivocally accepted. So when they are, in distress and or and maybe we are in some pain ourselves as well we mm-hmm. are able to still stay open um to 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 be in support of ourselves and be in support of others and that really is a kindness and compassion in action isn't it really yes absolutely kindness
1: and compassion in action and the recognition of our common humanity yes when i see someone yep. who's telling me how they are struggling with their cravings. I know that experience. Yeah. Because I struggle with craving every day of my life. Whether it be in the realm of food or in the realm of relationship or in like any way. But I experience craving and I also experience the pain of aversion to what is hurting. And I also experience confusion in my mind. And I also have an inner critic. And so, It's this process where because I know that, I don't have to imagine or try to pretend to understand. It's coming from a genuine place of, of course, it's the human experience. Yeah. And it happens to me too. And so I find that that is very different from the way we are taught to see clinical things. I, I honestly don't know how it is for dieticians in a way, but I know that from the from the point of view of medicine and psychotherapy, we are taught to diagnose, and then we are taught to pathologize, and we are taught to label as if everything is situated in the person in front of me.
0: Mm-hmm. I am free
1: from that, like that doesn't affect me as opposed to this mindful way of showing up where we're no different. I struggle with the
0: same things. Yeah, I think it's very similar in dietetics, actually, where um, I think it's not only our, our training, but it's also uh, that that part of us that has a, an innate desire to connect with another isn 't necessarily well supported, so no. that kind of uh, you know that, there's two things at play probably one is that our training um, maybe encourages us to double down on that sense of separateness that you know, the person in front of me is, is being done to rather than the, the being with. Um, mm-hmm. And then the, the second thing is that it, um, yeah, it then uh, we, we, we're kind of trained to, um, to be talking about um, clients and patients as the other or the other person um, as, as if we're not all all humans, you know, mm-hmm. as you say, sharing the same experience.
1: Yeah, I love the way you said that, done to as opposed to being with.
0: Mm -hmm. And because that's
1: a pattern, it's a pattern that we act on ourselves. And it's a pattern that we replicate in our relationships with others, particularly in the clinical scenario, where there's this power relationship.
0: That's really true. Yeah, that's really true. And when we have a narrative of ourselves as quote unquote expert, then it inevitably creates this kind of um, this uh, power power imbalance or, or a power structure which, um, you know, which leads the person in front of us to feel. Less than, and that's not our intention at all, is it? We don't want the person in front of us to feel less than or that they're not important to us. Um, and yet what you're, what you're really pointing us towards is, is the idea that when we can do our own work and be present with, that that in and of itself creates an environment where we are bringing equality into the room in, in spirit and in energy and with our words and actions.
1: Yes. And so the structure, where there's a power imbalance is partly because of the way we act and show up, but also partly because of a broader system that makes it so. And so it's inevitable that there's that power structure and we have a choice to either show up and replicate that power structure and and do to the person and situate ourselves as, ooh, I'm the expert and distance ourselves. Or we have the choice to say, I am using the power that I have because of the way the structure is set up yes, to really show up in in radical presence and build a relationship with this person as two human beings with a common aim, mm-hmm. which is to ease suffering and to heal
0: and see how we can do this together. Yeah. I love the way you use the word radical. So for you, what does radical mean? You know, radical presence, radical openness. What what does that mean to you?
1: So for me, it's back to the, the root of the word, which is literally actually radical means at the root. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very primal way of showing up and fully being in presence. And fully accepting, and yeah, so it's just this this thing that's from the root, from mm-hmm.
0: wholehearted, almost. Yeah. Yes. Yes, from the core, wholehearted. Yeah, uh, without bringing our whole selves. mm-hmm Yeah. Yes, our
1: whole selves, and for me, because radical has to do with bringing our whole selves,
0: it has to do with embodiment. Hmm. Yeah, because we're not leaving our bodies out of the room, are we? (laughs) Absolutely not. I hope so, at least. Yes. Yes, that's really true. Because when we bring our bodies into the room, we're bringing all our experiences with our bodies along with us as we sit with the experience of another. And this is a bit of a steep learning curve, I think, for a lot of professionals, would you say?
1: Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of unlearning, too. Oh, yes. <laughs> I think we instinctively know how to show up that way, but it's almost beaten out of us.
0: Hmm. Hmm. That's something really important to just, I just want to let that marinate for a second. <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, it has a lot of parallels, doesn't it, to the way in which we relate to our, our bodies and to food. You oh, know, yes. that's. It's so intuitive and when we're little and then it kind of, yeah, gets beaten out of us in a way. Yeah. Hmm.
1: Yes. You bring up this important point, really important. How how our natural way of showing up is in authenticity and embodied. And then something happens along the way that we lose that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And so what you were talking about before, when you were talking about meditation and your mindfulness practice, it, it seems as if for you, this, um, this, this, this was a path that really led you back to yourself. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. And I will, I will say one thing though. I will say that, Mindfulness is an isolated component actually just because of my natural tendencies became a very cerebral thing, a very disembodied thing that what brought me back to my body was actually my yoga practice. Oh, and, interesting. Yeah. And what brought me back to my heart was my compassion practice.
0: Oh, that's so beautiful. So mindfulness um, was really balm for your mind. And then yoga balm for the body and then compassion for your heart. Oh, I love that. Oh, this beautiful uh, picture is coming to my mind of, I don't know, a drawing, (laughs) a beautiful drawing.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Mm. I, I would love to see how that drawing looks like.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a woman. Actually, she looks a bit like you, Lily, remarkably like you, really, dancing, Um, sketch, sketch, I'll, I'll try and draw it for you. I'm no artist, I promise, but, um, how's that? Yeah, I would love to see that. So I've heard you, um, speak, uh, a little, especially more recently about what we understand is called performing or performative health and, I know you've got some ideas around what this is and how it's come to be, and how we can explore a little bit about. Uh, maybe now we call it unperforming. Maybe I'm not too sure, but um, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on on performing. Absolutely, yes. So I would say that
1: the opposite for me is embodied health. Mm-hmm. Uh, And in in health in in the sense of wholeness and well being, not in the sense of uh, a normative definition. So performative health for me has an underpinning that has to do with the forces of oppression. So healthism, the way we have turned health into a moral virtue and this discourse that it is something that we can all choose Mm -hmm. if we want to and if we really work for and if we hustle for, which really goes against all that we know about biology and social determinants of health. So it's really nonsensical, but there's a culture that has convinced us of that. And performative health also has to do with ableism. And it has to do with sizeism. And it's a really disembodying force because we're just really going through the motions of looking or trying to look or to comply with this normative body, which we have taught is worthier or prettier or more acceptable, or which will give us access to more things.
2: hmm
0: Mm-hmm. And how do we learn? Do you think to perform? What are the what are the kind of structures at play that that we can, can create some awareness around? Um, patriarchy, much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: Boom. the first thing
2: that comes to yeah. mind.
1: And I think that our whole—I mean, I think our whole health system.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. and find an economical system to capitalism. We are taught that it is important for our bodies to be commodities. And it is uh, important for our bodies to be the vehicle of production of productivity of yeah. And so it objectifies us. And because we become objects, we replicate this pattern, which you were so articulately talking about when referring to the relationship we establish with the people who come to us for help as in doing to as opposed to being with. And so we are doing onto our bodies because we're disembodied and we're objectifying our bodies. And so because we're doing to them, we are trying to get them to comply. And so we're doing all these things that don't necessarily align with an embodied experience of well-being, but that are things that are supposed to get us to that normative ideal of a body that is productive, that is worthy. And that is even worse, like a worthy commodity,
0: if that makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense because then we can be pleasing. Yes.
1: And when you said pleasing, that brings me to this other realm of the performative which is gender. Oh yeah. I think that performative health is very gendered in this very stereotypical binary way.
0: It excludes so many people's body experience, doesn't it? I I
1: honestly think it excludes the majority of people's body experience. Mhm. But because we are so trapped in this system, we become convinced that our body is the one that's unruly to speak in terms of what Roxanne Gaze has been, has been describing. And we, we become convinced that oh, my body is likely the, the one that's most wrong or the least compliant or the most unruly. And then we become trapped in this very isolation way of thinking. Mm -hmm. and even more disconnected because if we were to be embodied and connected we would realize that most of the human population shares this experience paradoxically
0: yeah and that we don't need to um beat ourselves into submission or to uh, you know make ourselves more malleable and and pleasing to to others that of course you know that that being um Again, being with being with our own experience, that is the that's the the way that we can um, uh, connect most authentically with ourselves and with other people as well. Of course,
1: this this performing of health, this performative mm-hmm. health, robs us of the opportunity of authentic connection. I was sharing that so a couple of weeks ago, I had a very difficult week at. For the people who are listening who don't know me, I have struggled with chronic pain and varying degrees of mobility limitation for the past few years. And a couple of weeks ago, I had a a difficult week, and I was bedridden for most of the week. And throughout that week, I had two really important meetings online, Well, important for me because they're part of work that I'm doing with two different communities that I really value, and we connect through Zoom. And so I found myself really wondering, oh, uh, well, is it okay for me to show up in my bed on video? Or do I turn the video off? And Mm -hmm. so they don't see me? Or do I just push through it and sit down? When I'm having difficult days, I cannot sit down. It's very, very painful. And, or just sit down and put on a pretty face and pretend that everything's okay. and." It's incredible to me that I even considered those two options because one is excruciating and painful and the other one robs me of the opportunity to see and be seen by the other people in these communities. And so I made the choice to just show up in my bed on video and it was very liberating and I thought, wow, you know, I'm connecting authentically from the place where my body is right now and this is part of who I am today. And so it brought me so much more authentic connection and nourishment than either having subjected my body to the pain of pretending everything's okay so that I can sit down and appear able-bodied in this very oppressive way, or I can deprive myself of the opportunity to see and be seen because I don't feel
0: it's worthy. Yeah. in this body I'm in today. Mm. So your experience of of uh, arriving and, and being authentic in a moment of suffering and in a moment of pain, paradoxically, was freeing for you.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. So freeing mm. and so nourishing. And the interesting thing is one of the women in one of those groups said, It was really liberating for me to see you like that because I thought, oh, right, I can show up in
0: whatever way I'm feeling today. Yeah. Yeah. And as practitioners, I think there's a lot we can take from that. Oh, Because we too end up performing (laughs) in so many ways. Oh, yeah. We end up, oh, yes.
1: Because, Mm. again, we're humans. Mm Mm-hmm and we are part of this system that has led us to believe that if we don't show up looking a certain way as though we're in a stage you know we we come to the stage of our clinical practice and we have to look a certain way and move a certain way and talk a certain way and appear very confident and authoritative and do the things that are expected of us and i think that there's a very warped sense of belonging in replicating the patterns that we are taught are normative in our professions, mm-hmm. as opposed to being our unique and rebellious selves. <laughs> I love
0: that, yes, because. Particularly, I mean, I'm sure you've experienced it in medicine, but in, in dietetics, there's a very um, there's a certain culture to it, um, and a certain set of expectations that are upheld within the profession in terms of appearance, in terms of um, yeah, it, it, not not only appearance, you know, what a dietitian looks like, what a dietitian talks about. Um, sure. You know we we have a certain reputation, I suppose, and what I notice is that there are a lot of particularly um, younger dietitians who become very disillusioned because they what I observe is that they feel stuck between this performing and mm-hmm. then also really wanting to be brave and wanting to be um, Really wanting to be, you know, connect with their rebellious selves, as you say. And as, as you know, I do a fair bit of teaching at university and I really try and cultivate that in them when I, when they speak up or when they have, you know, um, really unique ideas. I think it's really important that we foster that in our, um, in our training and in our colleagues because otherwise, it's just the same shit different sandwich, isn't it really? um to borrow a phrase from Christy Harrison um, and round we go again yes yes and and I think that it is
1: so important, and i'm right now i'm I have this huge wave of gratitude in my heart that you're doing this work because it's so important for young dietitians in training and young physicians in training and young psychologists and psychotherapists and coaches in training to have somebody they look up to say to them, wow, it's amazing that you're disagreeing. It's amazing that you're seeing things differently. Tell me more. Because otherwise we are just beating them into submission and replicating the same pattern where because we have such an instinctive need to belong, we quiet ourselves down, and because of the culture we've grown up in, and I I believe that dietetics is a field predominantly of women. Mm-hmm. We have such a huge imposter complex. Yeah. That if the one time we dare to be brave and speak up and say, you know, this doesn't make sense to me. And somebody beats us into submission. That is likely to crush this brave hearts that dare to
0: show up. Yeah. So in those moments where, you know, students are finding themselves maybe um in the presence of somebody who has perceived power
2: mm-hmm.
0: um and remembering that this is all part of a structure it's not actually real <laughs> in yeah. so many ways um, what kind of what advice would you give to a student who who is really aware that their um that of their critique and they're very aware that um that something feels not quite right, and that they might may feel criticised. Do you have any kind of advice for a younger professional in that situation? Yes. So,
1: because we are in a mindfulness and intuitive eating tradition, I would say the same things we say to every patient or client: trust that truth that's coming up in you. And in the words of Lucy Afremore, just because you're a minority, it doesn't mean you're wrong. Yeah, love that. And find your community. I can guarantee you, you're not the only person out there who's experiencing what you are.
0: Definitely. There's lots of rebels around. And and I was going to say, and they're rising. And I'm like, um, no, we. We are rising. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yes,
1: we are rising. And yeah.
0: I think that that's,
1: I'm, I'm not a big fan of many things around technology, but the one thing I am a fan of definitely is it has made it easier to connect with other rebels like me. Yes.
0: And you. Yeah. And it helps us you know, uh looping back to what we were talking about before, it reminds us that we're not alone. It reminds us that we have a common shared sense of the human experience. And uh, I'm not 100% sure about your experience, but it really encourages me to be brave, like in some tough situations or in moments where I'm tempted to shut down or tempted to back off or tempted to avoid or push away or become overattached, that Really, knowing that uh, other people have got my back, even if it's not, you know, obviously crowded around me in the clinic room, um, that that sense of not aloneness and feeling that there is a whole community of people—I think it really just encourages us to have to have courage. Oh yes, I
1: have become exponentially braver and more audacious because I know that there are people in this wonderful community who have my back. And at the same time, it has been incredibly important to be told by people in the same community, your choices will impact those who come after you. And when you're making a choice, it's not just for yourself. Think about whether it will contribute to collective oppression or to collective liberation. And that makes me braver too.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that that's something else to really remember is you know what am I what am I making a contribution to here and and when we can come at that um from a place which connects really deeply with our values and um and how we want to be with with each other and be with ourselves too. Mhm. Can it can encourage us to kind of link arms and um, and support each other, particularly when times get tough, you know, particularly when we feel criticised or, um, you know, there's yet another blow from the quote-unquote, you know, obesity network or, you know, um, where we're feeling like, ugh, here we go again. Um, Yes. And when our voice is questioned because...
1: Of our intersecting identities. Yeah. Yes. So one thing that I haven't, I haven't really talked about publicly very much. I think most of my life I had thin privilege. My nickname as a kid from my dad was actually Flaca, which is skinny or thin. And And then through my teenage years and 20s, I struggled with dieting, and I had periods of fluctuating in weight, but still I I had thin privilege my whole life. And then as a result of my back injury, my mobility changed and my body changed, and I am now living in what in my culture is considered a larger body. And I have seen how different people are in terms of listening to what I have to say Hmm. and it's been really interesting for me having the experience of living in two different sizes of body because I know the way that my voice was received when I was in a thinner body was very different from the way it is now and so it makes it very clear that it's not about me it's about the culture. And it's about privilege and it's about oppression Mm -hmm. and it's about marginalization. And so, even knowing that, of course, it's difficult. And at the same time, it's like, of course, people are going to question whatever I say that does not agree with them and they're going to find an excuse to do so. And so, for me, it is the fact that I'm now living in a larger body. For other people, it's the fact that they are non-binary gender for other people. It's simply because we're women for other people. It's because of the color of their skin. And so knowing that and being able to name that, that is in the system and not in us, I think also brings strength to continue
0: speaking up about our truth. Yes. Yeah. So this is not my, um, it's not my fault or it's not my burden. It doesn't belong within me.
1: Exactly. It's mm-hmm. not that I
0: am indeed an imposter and have mm-hmm. no clue about
1: what I'm talking about. It is that there is a culture and a cultural discourse and a power structure that does not allow my voice the same space or credibility that it affords others.
0: Yes, and how we can then, th- those of us with privilege or understanding how how we experience privilege, understanding that we may not experience universal privilege, most people don't, um, but that we make space and room for those who are marginalised and oppressed so that we can... So that we can really um, address inequity and address those power structures. So rather than the um, rather than um, privileged, rather than those with the most privilege keeping up, taking the most space and the most time and the most energy, when we recognise we have privilege in whatever way we experience that, that we can then make room for in a very deliberate way. I think this is what I'm really learning: is it's not just oh yes, in my spare time, it's no, no, we actually have to carve this out deliberately and find ways that are meaningful for us in our, in our work and in our lives.
1: Yes, absolutely. So one of the things that I've been doing lately is reclaiming my white coat. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> to, to fight the good fight. I, for years, I really deliberately Disassociated myself from the white coat as a symbol of the patriarchal medical system.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And lately I've been reclaiming it because I know it's a wise use of my privilege. I have the enormous privilege of a medical degree and that gives me credibility and that puts me higher in the power structure in terms of the health professions. Not because I think it's right, but because it's just the way it is. And so I wear that white coat to basically screen from the rooftops the message of haste and social justice and social determinants of health and trauma-informed care because I know that because I have this privilege, people are more likely to listen to what I have to say.
0: Yeah, you can make a greater impact that way. Yeah. Very smart. Very, very smart.
1: Thank
0: you. One one other thing – that I, I really, really don't want to miss out on this. So, is it okay if we segue into an article that you sure. re, that you recently wrote? I think it was only last week or the week before. And this is something that you and I have been talking about literally for years. Oh yeah. And I can tell that this blog has been stewing for a while, mm-hmm. and it was spectacular. Can I just say it was? A masterpiece. Thank you so much. So, will you tell us a little bit of, about this this masterpiece and um, and yeah, ha- how it all kind of came to fruition? Thank you. Yeah, you are so right about the
1: fact that it had been stewing for such a long time, and I had struggled to find the words because. So we were talking a little bit about this before recording that I, the way I use my words has evolved for a long time, for the longest time. And I I don't say I'm completely free from it. I probably am still doing it to some degree, but I used to really edit myself much more. And I think it would be actually more appropriate to say I censored myself much Mm -hmm. more.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And I I struggled to find words that felt kind and in a way that had a lot of tone policing in it. And it also had a component of me struggling to really show up fully as I am. I am someone who can be sassy and who can use irony and who has a weird, dark sense of humor. And that I don't let that show up as often because mm-hmm. they're not acceptable traits in the way that I was raised as a woman.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And at the same time, I I didn't really want to hurt anyone or shame anyone. And yet there were truths in there that I felt needed to be said without coddling anyone. Yes. We really need to own up to the ways in which we do harm. And I think that if, if we don't do it rooted in mindfulness, then what the fuck are we doing? Yeah. Because for me, mindfulness and compassion need to be ways to be present more wisely in the world and to practice more discernment. And that discernment includes examining our biases Mm -hmm. in a way that allows us to be accountable for the harm that we're doing, not from intention, but from impact. And to change the ways we are practicing so that we are better able to help. And so... One of the of the things that really triggered my writing of this article was seeing teachers I deeply respect and love and admire still teach from a place that is very weight-biased. And having approached them and from their reply, knowing that they didn't really get it. And I thought, wow. And For me, I needed to hold space for the fact that I have learned so much from them and are still learning from them. I'm still learning from them. And at the same time, there are things they are not seeing because of their own story, because of their own training, and because we have all been successfully socialized in the culture that is deeply weight biased. And that that weight bias is rooted in white supremacists in white supremacy. And so I just needed to write that uncensored, unfiltered, just saying what is true for me right now in what I am hoping we can bring to the world when we
0: teach mindful eating. Yeah. And so we can, what you really raise so beautifully in your article is about ways in which we confuse intention with impact mm-hmm. or ways in which we we may be aware and we may be um, uh, yeah we may have so much insight in so many ways, and yet we are still uh, you know if we are still rooted in diet culture and we 're still rooted in weight bias, then as health providers. That is what we are bringing into the room. And you address it in such a, you address it in, in a very authentic, um, actually, to be honest, I saw a lot of kindness in your writing, but what I saw was don't, bu-, you know, let's stop bullshitting around that kind of tone, um, rather than, I know you're trying, you're a good person, and then delivering it. Like you were like, nah, we kind of just need to stop bullshitting around. And, you know, that yes. was part of the difference for me. Yes.
1: So so for me, true kindness has a fierceness to it. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Because it it says the difficult truths. It says the painful truths that need to be heard so that we can make amends. So that we don't
0: perpetuate the harm. And also makes room for the pain that can arise in such moments.
1: Oh, yes. It makes pain for the tremendous grief that comes from realizing the harm we have done and continue to do. Yeah. And, And I think that that's so fierce compassion needs to be a component in that too, because of course we are going to fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> Every day we're yep. humans we continue to learn and we continue to undo and examine our biases but there needs to be a willingness to do that that comes from love
0: Yeah And when we're cultivating a sense of compassion for our own experience even if we're in pain and we and we you know realize that we've completely fucked something up whether that's in word or in action um, and maybe it's been for years that we are able to, to sit in that space and acknowledge our humanity rather than becoming defensive or pushing it away or something I'm just, I've been reading a little bit about is kind of this over apologizing or something Mm-hmm. which still seems very white to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes.
1: And, and I think that that is exactly why I struggled to write that piece for such a long time. Because there is this inner sensor that is, we confuse niceness for kindness. Oh, yeah. And the niceness is definitely so very white.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so very patriarchal in terms of being a woman, too.
0: Yeah, the things are so much more palatable if you're just nice about it, if you just ask me nicely or say that in a nice way. Yes, no. and please be demure. <laughs> That's right, be polite and preferably sit down. Yes. Ah, <laughs> uh, dear. Yes. So how did you feel when you completed that piece?
1: I felt good. It was like, yes, this is what I needed to be to, this is what I needed to say. And this is what I want to share. And I pressed publish and it was like, okay, so now I'm going to share. (laughs) And, and pressing share was so very liberating. And of course there are Oh, there are so many things happening at once. There's this, okay, shit, it's going out into the world. Yep. Uh, let's see what's happening. You know, let's find out what happens. And then another part of me was like, okay, yes, this is true for me right now. And I think it needs to be said. It's important for the work that I'm doing and for the work we are doing collectively. And okay. And so there's this fear and trepidation and relief and joy and everything happening all at once, and then there was so much gratitude because of the way it was received. Mm-hmm. People were reaching out to me, and people are still sharing people I really look up to and it's like wow yes it it made sense and And just honestly the gift of using my voice. And so yeah there's a lot of gratitude there and at the same time it kind of strengthened my commitment in terms of this is something I I I need to continue having conversations around. Yeah. And I'm I'm probably a year from now and five years from now, I'm going to look back and say, ah, okay, I wrote this. Now it's evolved because it continues to evolve all the time because we do.
0: That's it. That's it. You know, I feel like I, I, I wonder whether you would have written that two years ago. I don't think
1: so. Not in the same way, at least. I probably yeah. would have taken the, you're wonderful, keep doing what you're doing, just maybe tweak it a little bit.
0: And <laughs> You would have been too nice about it, I think. Yeah, I You think would have taken would the have been nice, too route. nice about it. Yeah, Yeah.
1: And mm-hmm. I would have been too nice about it. And there are a couple of other things that would have been very different my understanding of intersecting systems of privilege and oppression is way more nuanced than it used to be. I am more grounded in feminism than I used to be, and oding it, which is interesting because I I probably knew not as much, but, you know, a decent bit about it, but I I wasn't embodied and rooted in it as fiercely, I would say. Yeah. And I didn't feel as brave and there were things that I still needed to figure out and understand more. And in terms of, of the system's perspective, in terms of understanding the broader system, within which this happens. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there are a bunch of things that would have been different in how I said it. It wouldn't felt as complete as it does now. And again, I'm sure in a couple of years, it will still feel incomplete. And I think that I see this piece as just a part of a conversation that we need to continue
0: yeah it, it's almost like um when, when we're having courageous conversations that that you've kind of laid down a card and said, Hey, anybody want to play? let's talk." and I think yeah. that's, you know that's, that's something so it's so generous of you, Lily, to to have done that, and you've done it in a very compassionate fierce and deliberate way, which I've just i got so much admiration for the work that you have done and that you continue to do because it is, it does feel like you've played a card and you've said, this is me, this is what I stand for, and this is what I won't stand for anymore. And if you want to come sit with me at my table, then you are welcome and let's talk.
1: Yes, let's engage. And thank you so much for saying that. And I need to say that the feeling is completely mutual. And in fact, you have been such an inspiration to me because of your fierceness and your feistiness and your non-apologetic, non-bullshit stance and way of being in the world. And I love that about you. And it's really, really inspiring.
0: Oh, thank you, Lily. Yeah, I just, I think I love the word fuck. So it kind of just... (laughs) <laughs> comes out like that. Not everybody is super appreciative, but I find that it adds it adds a ferocity to any sentence actually. Like Yes. A, yes. Not, and not, also there there is something of you in
1: the piece. There's the part <laughs> of it where I wrote not enough eye rolls for that. Oh uh, yes. <laughs> that is straight fee inspiration
0: oh yes (laughs) that is so true yeah i do use that expression a bit (laughs) (laughs) well i'm honored lily honestly so i mean seriously you and i we we have we literally you and i have literally in the past talked for hours and we could continue to do so and we will do so in the future for sure but just to round us out um Please tell us where people can find you um, and follow you and learn more about your work and about you.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Fee. So I have two pages. One of them is in English. It's fiercelyembodied.com. And fiercely embodied is my coaching approach to battle and dismantle and interrupt this performance of health, performative health. And cultivate fierce embodiments. And so that's, yeah, fiercelyembodied.com. And I have another webpage that's in Spanish. It's mindfuleatingmexico.com. I, I practice in Mexico. I'm based in Mexico and I'm Mexican. And so a lot of my practice, I would say most of it actually is in Spanish, but I do provide services in both English and Spanish and just my the my bilingual web page for or website for my medical and psychotherapy practice is still work in progress (laughs) excellent but in the meantime you can find me there
0: yeah that's great no you're not you're not too hard to find you're not too hard to find nah nah that's great lily thank you so much for your generosity of spirit and energy and for just bringing your fierce beautiful self I'm personally very, very grateful, and no doubt at all, um, uh, our audience will be, will be grateful. And I was sharing with you that you are the first dietitian guest I have had, and I, I know I have been um, hassling you for a little while. So I am just incredibly grateful to have you here, and thank you so, so much.
1: I am so honored and grateful to be the first dietitian in this podcast. That feels super special And really, thank you for having me.
0: You're so welcome. I'll speak to you soon. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Bye. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.